legalism or liberty. Many Christians over the years have shared with me their struggle with legalism and their desire for liberty in Christ. I heard from many who read my book, Transformed by Adoption, and told me that legalism had enslaved them for so many years. Now they were beginning to grasp the liberty they would enjoy in Christ, and they found it so refreshing. As I have preached on Galatians, many have told me that it sounded like I was preaching just to them. Let me assure you, I am not clairvoyant. It is because I, too, have struggled with the slavery of legalism and found the liberating power of Christ in my life. So, my friends, I understand your spiritual struggles with legalism and your desire to experience spiritual liberty in Christ. Even though we all understand that we have a relationship with God solely by His grace— we still continually slip into basing our spirituality on our performance. We make Christianity into a religion, not a relationship. We focus on law, not grace. We exchange life for death and liberty for slavery. To use Paul's analogy, we turn sons back into slaves. Relationships can be scary. So there is a certain comfort in religious structures. A religion brings a certain security which we all crave. Religion sets the concrete boundaries and establishes measurable markers that we can all achieve, which makes us all feel safe. That's why it's so easy to fall back into the trap of gauging our spirituality by our performance. We can determine our Christian lives by a holiness checklist that allows us to check off our achievements and feel that we are successful Christians. In Galatians 4, verses 8 through 11, Paul warns us not to fall into that trap. Notice, first of all, that a relationship with God brings the freedom of sonship. A relationship with God brings the freedom of sonship. Verses 8 and 9. Paul wrote in Galatians 4, verse 7, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Then Paul continues with these words in verses 8 through 11. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Paul has established the fact that we are sons, not slaves. So why do we want to turn back and become slaves, not sons? He begins his argument by establishing a contrast between their former idolatry and their current relationship with God. In verse 8, Paul points out that they were slaves to their idols because their lives were regulated by idols whom they worshipped as gods. 
He goes on to say that those idols were not really gods at all, of course. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. They're not gods. These words would be perfectly consistent with Judaism. A good Jew would say the same thing. They are not gods. The Jewish rabbis often did. They treated the pagan gods and goddesses as unreal, fictitious. There's a story told in the Mishnah about Rabbi Gamaliel, who could well have been Paul's own teacher. Gamaliel entered the bathhouse of Aphrodite, a pagan goddess, to bathe. While there, he was asked, Why would you, a Jew, enter the bathhouse of a pagan goddess? Gamaliel responded, that it was obvious that the goddess was not real, for who would expose their nakedness before a real goddess? He said, this goddess stands at the mouth of the gutter, so she must not be real, and thus cannot affect us at all. Paul goes on to draw the contrast with their relationship as Christians with the real, living, and true God Almighty in verse 9. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. The Galatians had come to know God. It was Jesus Christ who said in John 17:3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Christianity is a relationship with the only true God. The word know is used of an intimate love relationship. It is not knowing about God that is important. There are many, even in our churches, who know all about God. It is knowing God in a relationship that is important. Knowing about God is religion, but knowing God is a relationship. Now notice that Paul qualifies himself, like any good theologian, when he says, or rather to be known by God. Theologically, it is not we who come to know God, but it is God who chooses to know us in a relationship. This is good theology. If we were the ones who sought out God and discovered him, then we would know him based on our abilities. Such an idea would deny everything that the Bible teaches. Salvation would come to those who pursue God hard enough to find God, and that would be performance salvation. Our salvation would depend on us pursuing God instead of God pursuing us. Once we look at salvation as something we achieve, we are practicing a religion. The truth of the matter is simple. No one seeks God at all. Ever. We are dead, spiritual corpses who are incapable of pursuing God, let alone finding Him. Paul tells us in Romans 3, verses 10 and 11, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who seeks for God. We can claim no merit in the salvation process. We didn't even want to follow Him until he changed our wanters. God persuaded us to want to follow him. 
Salvation is always at God's initiative, not ours. We might think that we chose God, but in reality, He chose us first. That is why the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4.19, We love Him because He first loved us. My friends, we cannot look down our spiritually arrogant noses at anyone else and say, Nyeh, nyeh, I'm better than you because I chose to follow God and you didn't. No, that would make salvation founded on me instead of on God. Moralism is self-righteous arrogance. If we in the church look out from our sanctified buildings and treat others as godless, immoral people who are not good like we in the church are, what are we saying? We are saying that we are holy because of our good works. This is not true at all. We are holy because of God's good work. The truth of the matter is that salvation is founded on God's grace, not our choices. God initiates. I respond. God persuades. I trust him. God chose you, my friends, and you responded to him, not the other way around. Your salvation is grounded on God, not you. A little boy was approached by a Christian worker who asked him, My boy, have you found Jesus? The little boy looked up at the evangelist and said, Why, sir, I didn't know he was lost, but I was, and he found me. We desperately need the theology of that little boy in our churches. You were not saved because you were smart enough to choose God. And you do not remain saved because you are smart enough not to reject God. Salvation is God's work from start to finish and everything in between. All we do is respond to him in faith. All of this leads up to Paul's big question in verse 9. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. If you were saved from the weak and worthless elemental things of this world, why do you return to them again? If you were saved from religious moralism, why would you return to religious moralism? Why would anyone want to exchange their freedom in Christ to be controlled and regulated by human religious leaders. I often enjoyed reading to my girls when they were young, and I usually read them a bedtime story each night when I was home. One story we frequently read was called Alexander and the Wind-Up Mouse. It's the story of a little mouse named Alexander who lives in a house where no one loves him very much. Every time someone sees him, they scream and try to whack him with a broom. One day, Alexander is playing when he comes across a little wind-up toy mouse named Willie. Their conversation goes like this. Who are you? asked Alexander. Well, I'm Willie, the wind-up mouse, Annie's favorite toy. They wind me to make me run in circles. They cuddle me. And at night I sleep on a soft white pillow between the doll and a woolly teddy bear. Everyone loves me. 
They don't care much for me, said Alexander sadly. But he was happy to have found a friend. Let's go into the kitchen and look for crumbs, he said. Oh, I can't, said Willie. I can only move when they wind me. But I don't mind. Everybody loves me. And in his lonely hideout, Alexander decides he wants to become a wind-up mouse like Willie, so everyone will love and cuddle him, too. He is willing to exchange his freedom for slavery, so he asks the magic lizard in the garden to change him into a wind-up mouse like Willie. The lizard tells him that he must bring a round purple pebble to him when there is a full moon for the magic that changes mice to work. Alexander searches and searches for a purple pebble, but cannot find one anywhere. Eventually, Alexander returns to Willie, only to find out that Willie has been dumped into a box to be thrown out because Annie had a birthday and received many new presents. Willie was no longer wanted. When Alexander does find a purple pebble, he decides to have the magic lizard turn Willie into a real mouse, rather than become a wind-up mouse after all. How many of us spend most of our time trying to be spiritual wind-up mice because it brings security? We exchange our freedom for the bondage of religious control, seeking to feel good about ourselves. But religion does not offer permanent security. Only our relationship with Christ brings that kind of security. The word Paul uses in verse 9 is the same word he used back in verse 3. These elements are anything that man puts his trust in apart from the living God. These are the ABCs of religion. These ABCs of religion are the same, no matter what the religion. Because every religion that humans concoct is based on performance. There are rules, regulations, and rituals which are required if we are to gain God's favor. And if we fail in those religious requirements, then we will end up like the wind-up mouse, discarded by God. Like the wind-up mouse, our value comes from our performance. We are only worth something to God if we are good. Our value comes from what we do, and that only happens when someone winds us up to perform well. And that, my friends, is slavery. Anytime you fall into that trap, you will be enslaved in your own misery by the ABCs of your religion. The Bible warns us, we substitute our sonship with slavery when we supplement our relationship with religion. We substitute our sonship with slavery when we supplement our relationship with religion. It's as if we think we can add to or improve Christianity, so we try to supplement it with rules, regulations, and rituals. After all, we supplement everything else these days. Just read the food labels on the cartons you buy at the grocery store. The cereal, Just Right, just got writer. I noticed that the packaging said, Enriched Wheat Flour, on the label of the crackers I was eating. 
dietary supplements are normal. Everything is new and improved. You would think that we were the healthiest generation ever to live on the face of this earth. It's like the two men who were on their coffee break, and the conversation drifted to their diets. One of them produced a large sweet roll and began to eat it. The other one said, Is that allowed on your diet? Well, it's only allowed on my second diet, the man explained. You mean that you're on two diets, the first man asked? Uh-huh. The first diet didn't give me enough to eat. I think we apply the same logic to Christianity, as if we can improve on our salvation. It doesn't satisfy us to trust God for his grace. We need to supplement God's grace with our works. We need to supplement God's salvation with our self-righteousness. Paul keeps bringing us back to our relationship with God by his grace. He warns us not to supplement our salvation with religious invention because we substitute our sonship with slavery when we supplement our relationship with religion. Our relationship with God by the grace of Christ makes us adult sons of God with all the freedoms that come with sonship, as we have learned. However, as Paul lays out in the next verses, a religion of works brings the bondage of slavery, verses 10 and 11. A religion of works brings the bondage of slavery. Look at verses 10 and 11. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Apparently, Paul was referring here to the Jewish calendar. The Galatians were adopting the Jewish calendar as a way of improving their religious faith. The tense of this Greek verb would indicate that it was already being practiced by the Galatian church. The Galatians may not yet have begun practicing circumcision as the legalizers wanted them to do, but they had started to substitute the religious observances of the Jewish calendar as a way of gaining God's favor. The days would refer to the various Sabbath days that the Jews practiced as part of their religion. The months would refer to the recurring festivals such as Passover or Tabernacles. Years would refer to the Sabbath year such as Jubilee. Every 50th year the Jews were supposed to practice a special year of Jubilee. It was a year of rest and forgiveness of debts. Some have suggested that the year of Jubilee would have fallen in 4748 A.D., and Paul likely wrote Galatians around 49 A.D. So they may have just been practicing this Sabbath year. I want you to notice several things here. First, Paul, a Jew by heritage, is treating the Jewish religion as being the same as any pagan religion. Both religions, or all religions, belong to the category he has called the ABCs of religion. 
The Galatians are said to be returning to this Jewish religion, but since they were mostly Gentiles, they were returning only in the sense that Judaism was on par with paganism in its attempts to save humans by performance. God had instituted the laws of the Old Testament, but he never intended that those laws could save anyone. The laws were intended to drive humans to God. The Israelites were to perform the sacrifices by faith in God because they saw their sins in the mirror of the law. When the Jews made those laws into a way to save themselves, then they perverted God's laws and became no different than the Gentiles in their religion. My second observation is that Paul is not saying here that Christians can never enjoy a feast, a festival, or a special celebration. We must understand this passage in the context of the rest of Scripture. Paul is not contradicting what he will later say in Romans 14, verse 5. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Again, Paul writes in Colossians 2.16, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. No one's to act as your judge in these matters. You're free. Jewish Christians can observe Hanukkah and Gentile Christians can observe Christmas. So long as those observances are not imposed upon others as religious obligations, we are free to disagree about how we treat Sundays, for example. Some will watch a sporting event or go boating and swimming while others will not. These are personal convictions, and there is liberty in our personal convictions about these matters. In disagreement, there is liberty. But in imposition, there is bondage. When we impose our attitudes about days and festivals upon anyone else as a matter of religious obligation, then we are returning to the ABCs of religion. When we make the performance of certain rules, regulations, and rituals necessary for salvation, or to prove our holiness, then we make our relationship with Christ into a religion. The communion service, or Eucharist, that Christians practice is commanded in Scripture, but it is not necessary for salvation. Baptism is also commanded, but baptism does not save you. These are not sacraments, that is, means of saving grace. The observance of the Lord's Supper cannot save you, and neither can water baptism. These are memorials of our relationship with which God has established with us through Christ. That's why when I led communion, I would invite only those who have entered into a relationship with Christ to participate. They were expressing in worship what God had done for them in Christ. It's also why I would invite any who have a relationship with Christ to participate, whether or not they were part of the membership of our particular local church. Communion and baptism are not religious rituals we perform for salvation. They are memorial expressions of the salvation God has already accomplished. 
It was Martin Luther who observed that people who choose law over gospel are like Aesop's dog. The dog was carrying a prime piece of meat along the riverbank when he noticed his reflection in the water below. So the dog dropped the piece of meat to bite the reflection in the water, and so he lost both the meat and the reflection. That is the way it is spiritually, my friends. When we try to supplement our relationship with the Lord with additives of any sort, no matter how good those additives are, we turn the good news into bad news and liberty into slavery. We substitute our sonship with slavery when we supplement our relationship with religion. The basis of every religion is that humans bring something to God to earn his approval. Christianity alone says that you must divest yourself of all that is in your hands and accept his atoning grace for your sin. Christianity tells us that the sinner comes with empty hands, not clinging to anything save the cross of Christ. I like the words written by Augustus Toplady. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. 